Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. As people travel, they take with them their tastes and flavors, and then they marry them with new ones. And so it's uh, something that ties us to our roots, but at the same time, it's also something that allows us to connect with other people. And I think that that's probably what I uh, appreciate the most and what I find the most enriching about about studying uh, the history of, of food. Hello, my name is Thomas Dinas, and this is the Delicious Legacy Podcast. Welcome back to another archaeogastronomical adventure, the Islamic Golden Age. What image those words conjure in one's mind? Do you think of the Arabian Nights, or as it should probably called, 1001 Nights? Is your imagination also filled with other Middle Eastern folk tales like the Aladdin? and Alibaba and Sinbad the Sailor? Is this what comes to one's mind when we're talking about the medieval Arab world? Or maybe the flourishing of scientific, cultural, economic activities in the near Middle East and the center of the world's knowledge in the largest city then, called Baghdad? Well, so you should. These are superbly important aspects of the medieval Arab world. But for me, Equally important was the flourishing of an extremely delicious, complex culinary tradition, a cuisine with one foot in the Arab Peninsula and the other in ancient Persia. Mouth-watering rich stews and elaborate banquets, feasts for kings and caliphs that lasted weeks on end. In other words, food. Food, glorious food. Food that we never heard of or very rarely thought of Food and recipes that influenced the European medieval cuisine and to this day we find echoes of them in recipes across the world, without exaggeration, from India to South America. And for this reason, I have invited on today's episode Professor Daniel Newman, an academic from Durham University specializing in Arabic literature, to talk to us about the medieval Arab cuisine. He is also known for his blog Eat Like a Sultan, where he brings the medieval recipes to our modern world with some mouth-watering creations. And so Professor Newman shares with us his unique insight of a rich and wonderful world. 
This was such a fun interview and I thoroughly enjoyed our chat with Professor Newman. He's such a passionate and knowledgeable man who loves sharing his wisdom with us. If I had such lectures in my university time, then I would have had doubtless a lot better grades. So the first part of this interview is going to be this week and then next week we're going to have part two. So sit back, relax and enjoy part one of the Medieval Arab Cuisine interview. So without further ado, let's welcome Professor Daniel Newman. Thank you for coming to The Delicious Legacy, Daniel. Thank you, Thomas. Uh, it's uh, great to be here. Thank you for having me. And I hope you will enjoy tonight's talk. We are talking obviously about food, ancient food, recipes, history, and obviously archaeology, experimental archaeology. So we enjoy all the stuff. So hopefully we will have fun talking about medieval, Arab, Persian cuisine, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Let's see where our adventure will take us today. Sounds good. Yeah, before we uh, before we start, a, a bit of an intro about you. Um, what are you doing? Who are you? What are you up to? And all that stuff, if you don't mind. Uh-huh. No, 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 of course not. Well, I'm um, currently um, attached to Durham University, where I'm the uh, professor of Arabic. And my research covers a, a number of areas, the two main ones being Arabic geographical literature, travel writing, and um, food studies, more precisely, the history of the Arab culinary tradition. Mm-hmm. And um, how did you end up um, doing that? Um, doing Arabic or, um, or doing the, the... The food and the cuisine, the culinary uh, adventure, let's say. Right. Well, that's um, an interesting journey in itself. It grew out of work that I did on the uh, on medieval Islamic medicine. Mm-hmm. And of course, in Islamic uh, medieval medicine, food plays an important role. It's part of this humoral tradition, just like in ancient Greece. Yeah. Food, of course, or medicine is, is viewed in, a, in what we can call, or what we today call a very holistic perspective. And so food, what you, what you eat and what you drink and when you do so, has an important effect on, on your health, on your mood and, and so on and so forth. And so it was essentially a, a natural progression into the culinary tradition. And so this is um, now a fair number of years ago. But very soon afterwards, I thought it might be a nice idea to combine the practical with the theoretical mm-hmm, and, and to start uh, cooking some of those things. And um, so my partner and I started experimenting, and that then uh, led to uh, a blog where I present where I, these recreations of dishes as well as provide some, what I hope is interesting background information. And I have to say that the, the journey, not only has the journey been extremely pleasant and pleasurable, it has also had a very practical uh, consequence. And that is that often the culinary text, and perhaps we'll, we'll have occasion to talk about this later on, but yeah. often the culinary recipes are a little bit short on the detail, so to speak. And by cooking them and by experimenting, I actually obtained a much better insight sometimes into how the recipes worked, because the recipes were written for the most part for people who already knew how to how to cook. Mm. And it's a little bit like today, if a chef writes a recipe for another chef, 
It's a bit like a chemist writing something for another chemist. You assume certain things. You assume that the other person knows that you you put this ingredient before the other one. And so by by experimenting, it it actually gave me an, a wonderful insight into into the subject. And often, when something was unclear in the recipe, by cooking it, it became suddenly very clear what the author intended. But, you know, it's an extremely fun thing and uh, a very enriching aspect of, of my academic work. Brilliant. That sounds already very fascinating. And I can't uh, wait to hear more about it, of course. So basically, uh, your uh, personal project is called Medieval Arab Cooking, right? That's, Correct. That's, yeah. That's, yeah. yeah, you have an Instagram account and you have a blog. Do you do any events as well? Um, yes. For instance, uh, a couple of years ago, um, I organized um, a medieval banquet in uh, Qatar uh-huh. at the Museum of Islamic Art. And so I drew on recipes from a wide variety of cookery books um, from across the Muslim world, across the Mediterranean. Mm. And this was done in a, in a modern kitchen at the, the restaurant of the Museum of Islamic Art the Alain Ducasse restaurant. Um, and that was a, that was a wonderful uh, experience as well. And, and to the best of my knowledge, I think it, it probably may well be the only uh, such event to, to have taken place in the Arab world. And um, so it's a testament also to a, a growing interest in the subject everywhere, really. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, the Arab cuisine, obviously, in general, and historical Arab Arab cuisine, which is, I guess, is going to be very different to what we think now as Middle Eastern cuisine, but also in terms of um, the experimental archaeology as well, I think, and throughout the Mediterranean, I suppose we had we have a, a huge area of um, of influence from from the Arabs. So I think from Spain. All the way, mm-hmm. you know, one side of the Mediterranean, North yeah. Africa, all of uh, the Middle East, the Arab world, um, Persia, Iran-Iraq, what we call Iran-Iraq, and Turkey. And yeah, so it must be a huge area and must be a lot of different influ- influences and dishes that you can find and explore in this vast region, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. There, there are a number of uh, competing uh, aspects, really. On, on the one hand, I mean, the variety is, is astounding. And um, it's it's one that never ceases to to amaze the the Arab tradition, culinary tradition. In terms of the number of recipes, we're talking about over four thousand recipes. Wow! And um, so, for a number of centuries, nobody was writing cookery books except uh, the Arabs. Mm. And so, it's an immensely rich uh, literature, uh, the richest actually. If we're talking about historical culinary tradition and historical works, textual resources, it's the the richest. And in fact, it's only preceded by essentially the the, the big Roman uh, cookery book by Apicius. Apicius. Mm-hmm. Because as, as you know, there was, of course, cooking before that, but the, the sources are very, very scarce indeed. Um, there are no cookery books that have come down to us written by the Greeks. For instance, there are references, but there's no cookery books. And so um, apart from this Latin work, for centuries we we have nothing. And then all of a sudden we have this huge body of 
recipes that emerge as fully formed. So there, there are many, many mysteries, uh, delightful mysteries about um, this subject. I see. The, the first, that it should have occurred in that region. Secondly, that it appears it literally fully formed. And so we the, the, the oldest cookery book already has hundreds of recipes. So this starts in about the 10th century, although the manuscript of that text is dated uh, a few centuries later, from, from the 13th, actually. And so it, it continues in the 10th and then the 13th, 14th and 15th centuries. Mm. And then it, it stops. The third point is, um, of course, that, and now I'm returning to your, your point about the variety and the geographical area is that we we've got culinary resources that from the western mediterranean so muslim spain al andalus all the way to iraq or what is today iraq mm, and yeah. on the one hand there are a number of differences on the other hand it is also very interesting to note the number of similarities between the dishes and of course this also then can be linked to this very extensive uh, trading network that existed. You know, today we, we often uh, imagine that you had two separate worlds, the Christian world, the Muslim worlds, and you know, never the twain shall meet that kind of uh, view. Whereas in, in reality, um, nothing could be further from the truth. There was a huge amount of exchange of, of contact across the two uh, areas. And, um, and of course, also within the the Muslim world. Yes. And so you find, for instance, just like couscous, traveling uh, west already probably the 12th uh, century. It, uh, in the 13th, 14th century, we already have uh, recipes. And when an Ottoman traveler visits Egypt in the 17th century, he actually notices or, or remarks on the fact that couscous is, is one of the things that Egyptians uh, eat the most. So on the one hand, a, a variety, but on the other hand, also uh, exchanges between the the across the, the the Muslim the Muslim world. Yeah, and of course that's part of the story. The other half of the story are then the exchanges to which you've also referred between the Arabic culinary tradition and uh, Christian Europe, where you essentially have what we can call a, a pincer movement. On the one hand, there is an influence that takes place or that runs. Uh, along the along more east through Italy and of course Sicily, as you know, yeah. the the Arabs of course were in Sicily for quite some time. So through Sicily and then Italy, and then we have another route, perhaps a more obvious one, uh, through of course Spain, the Iberian Peninsula, yeah. where uh, we have a number of of influences that filter through first to the uh, Spanish but then also go up north. And um, medieval uh, European cuisine contains uh, quite a few elements that we can trace back without much difficulty to the Arab tradition. Indeed, especially, I think, with the use of uh, the spices. So all the spices coming from the East, they have to go through the Arab world and then to be exchanged and come to North Europe. And then North Europeans used a lot of spices. And of course rice as well. Today's episode is brought to you with the welcome support of Malbin Greek. 
UK's leading Greek delicatessen, supplier and distributor of premium Greek produce. Be it wine, herbs, cheeses or olive oil, from all over the wild corners of Greece and working directly with small artisan producers. If you want to try some um, amazing traditional meats from Greece, preserved meats, why don't you get some Bavourakis organic smoked ciglino from Malbin Greek? So this is preserved um, and smoked um, pork in olive oil and they follow a traditional Cretan recipe for it, which is really old. And uh, the meat is smoked using olive wood and it's flavored with pepper and cumin. So this is kind of, this is a kind of meat uh, and the kind of preservation techniques that go a long, long way to the past. And um, yeah, uh, it has some relation to our episode today. Or you can try the organic uh, Cretan sausages with cumin and vinegar. Again, another old Cretan recipe with uh, roots to the Byzantine um, Empire. Whatever you need, Malbin Greek has you covered. You can shop online and have the exquisite goods delivered to your doorstep across the UK, or you can visit the shop at Art 17 Apollo Business Park, Lucy Way, SE16 4ET, Bermondsey, London. Malby and Greek, the one-stop shop for your Greek fix. And, <laughs> of course, for all you dear listeners, Malby and Greek has an amazing discount of 15% of your next purchase. So go online, go to the website and type malbyandgreek.com forward slash delicious and you get 15% discount at the checkout. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And of course, rice as well. 
Yes, yes, in, in, indeed. Um, the spices, you know, things like, um, oh my word, uh, ginger, um, things like coriander, the use of uh, rose water, for instance, is also something that's that's very Arab and that, that was very popular in uh, in Western Europe. Rice is an interesting one, though. Because although today in the Arab world, at least in the East, in the Near East, uh, rice is a, a very frequently encountered ingredient. In some areas, it is an absolute staple. Um, mm -hmm. You know, places like the Gulf, for instance, where uh, rice is eaten almost daily. In other areas, however, for instance, in North Africa, rice is eaten with much less frequency. And um, the same was true, incidentally, in, in Muslim Spain. Mm -hmm. um, the reason being, and, and this is borne out, incidentally, by the cookery books, by the recipes, the reason being a, a very obvious one, and that is that in Muslim Spain, there was a very limited rice production. And, and so rice was uh, essentially restricted to those areas, particularly around Valencia and so on, where where rice was grown, mm. which explains why to this day in, in North Africa it's either couscous or bread. Bread is the, the the big thing. So there, North Africa, so Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia. Um, I don't think we can call those rice countries uh, yeah. even today. Although of course people do eat rice, um, but so that's that's one very interesting difference. Uh, another one is fish. Uh, interestingly enough, um, right. fish uh, in the Near East, um, there aren't really that many fish dishes uh, because fish was considered less favorably than, than meat. Uh, meat was king, of course. And um, so fish was uh, not something that would appear in great quantities uh, at the, the tables of the elite. In the Western Mediterranean, so North Africa and, and Muslim Spain, there we find quite a few uh, recipes that um, that contain fish, and in in one case we we even have recipes for tuna, uh, the what I believe to be uh, the oldest recipes actually for tuna. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah um, what's the recipe? What, what what exactly are the details from the recipe? It's uh, they use both uh, fresh and and dried, but it's essentially a fish cooked with a with a variety of uh, spices. Right, uh, and then you would have you would have eaten that with with bread, of course. Right, right. So if we go to let's say the area of what was um what is now Iran and Iraq and like this kind of Persian influence of the Arab world. What's happening in that area the, around the 10th century AD then? What's the, the general geopolitical situation which, uh, and how that influences? Um, what do we know from that area about the food and the recipes and the books that they come out from, from there? Right, yeah. So the 10th century, so we're in the uh, Abbasid uh, uh, Caliphate, yeah. which succeeded the Umayyads, who in turn, of course, succeeded in, in a manner of speaking, the uh, Sassanids, the Persian uh, dynasty of the Sassanids. And so the 10th century was uh, an interesting period because it's also in that century that we have uh, the emergence of a, uh, another, of a, Persia, a Persian uh, dynasty, 
the Buyids, who actually uh, take uh, Baghdad at, at some point. But when we talk about the influence of the Persians, that actually started a great deal earlier. I see. And in fact, it goes back to uh, the very beginning of the Arab culinary tradition. In fact, the Persian influence goes some way towards explaining why this tradition arrived on the scene, burst onto the scene, fully formed. Mm -hmm. So the main influences, it, it, very, very briefly, of course, uh, in terms of recipes, uh, in terms of dishes and flavors and so on, um, I think what probably springs to mind for me are things like stews from the Persians, the sweet and sour, sweet meats, and of course, also the culinary, uh, or I should perhaps say gourmet gastronomical culture of the banquets and culinary mm. extravagance and opulence, the emphasis on, on meat. That is something that came from Persia through the, the, the Sassanids. Right. And uh, of course, the next question is, well, well, if there are no Persian cookery books available, how can we corroborate this kind of statement? Well, fortunately, there are a number of things that um, support uh, this. Uh, there's a great deal of, of corroborative, albeit circumstantial evidence. The first uh, very significant point here is the linguistic evidence. And so many of the dishes in the early Arabic culinary tradition have Persian names. And uh, these are things like uh, sigbaj, which is a vinegar stew. Sigbaj, so sig is the Persian word for vinegar. And baj is the middle Persian word for stew, so vinegar stew. They, uh, some of the ingredients appear in their Persian form rather than the Arabic form. What else? There are references in the early cookery books, and even slightly later it has to be said, to Persian history and especially the Sassanids. References to historical events, people, you know, like the, the great Anushirwan, uh, the Khosrow, the, the king. Um, and then we also are fortunate, uh, although there's no cookery books, there are a few textual sources that tell us a little bit about Sassanid food. And one such source is a, is a very short little tale about the king and his page. Uh, and it's... Uh, a very short story about a king essentially interviewing a, a young man that uh, wants to be his page, and the king wants to make sure that this young man knows all the right things about what is appropriate uh, for civilized society, so to speak. And one of the areas on which the boy uh, is questioned is food. And so he's asked, for instance, what are the finest meats? What are the finest dishes? What is the best wine? And so on and so forth. And so here we get a little bit of an insight. Once again, we have references to sweets, for instance, which occur in their Persian form and which we can find already in the Arabic books later on. Things like lauzinaj and jauzinaj, which are respectively almond and, and walnut uh, sweets. Lauzinaj being a... a kind of an ancestor to, to marzipan, uh, mm. but also um, some very scant 
uh, unfortunately, references to how the dish or dishes that the young man believes to be of the highest quality should be should be prepared. And so, for instance, he talks about a two-month-old kid goat that has been nourished with its uh, mother's milk and that of a cow. Imagine the sophistication. So they, they even, uh, it's kind of half and half uh, uh, milk combo that they would feed yeah. the animal. And then um, the, the meat would be rubbed with, with olive juice. Right. And then cooked in a meat broth and eaten with, with sugar and candy. You can, you can immediately uh, uh, sense the, yes, the kind of sweet and sour, um, yeah. which, um, so this, this use of sugar with, with meat and so on uh, is, is uh, something that we also find in the Arab tradition. Uh, they were great mm -hmm. lovers, for instance, of fruit stews. And, yeah. of course, we find the same thing. This is one of these um, main influences on medieval uh, Christian Europe, uh, mm -hmm. where they had this uh, blanc manger, which is essentially a rice pudding with, with meat, with chicken. Yeah. Uh, again, that's sweet and sour, which, is, which has a, a direct ancestor uh, in, in, the, in the Arab tradition. Uh, which in turn goes back to a Persian tradition. And who knows where the Persians got it? Because I think mm. one of the things that is so fascinating about food history and food studies, of course, is that you never know where it ends, nor is that particularly important, uh, I mm -hmm. think. It's, it's yeah. all about the journey. It's about contacts. And, oh, for sure. And as people travel, they take with them their tastes and flavors, and then they marry them with new ones. And so it's uh, something that ties us to our roots, but at the same time, it's also something that allows us to connect with other people. And I think that that's probably what I uh, appreciate the most and what I find the most enriching about about studying uh, the history of, of food. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more with you, to be honest. I think that's the important thing, that we, we make connections with other people and with other cultures through food and this is, yeah, this is really fascinating. And as you say, the journey too. And I suppose uh, talking about the sweet uh, element, so I guess they used sugar. Uh, mm -hmm. But do you think is that it was that uh, the fact that uh, it was um, expensive and it, they could show off like uh, the, the, the kings and the, the higher classes that look, we can use sugar and we are rich or it was something that it was more to do with the taste that it was... Uh, they were fascinated with the sweet and sour <laughs> combination, as I suppose uh, other cultures do. Yeah, well, that's that's an excellent uh, question. Sugar, of course, came after another very popular sweetener, honey, of course. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, you're right uh, in saying that um, sugar was more expensive. And so what's important here is that when we look at the body of literature, of the cookery books, most of them reveal the cuisine of the elite. Yeah. And uh, you, you rightly pointed out sugar being more expensive has a higher incidence in those recipes than it would have done amongst the general population, so to speak, uh, who, would have, who would have had honey. Also, sugar had the support of physicians. That's another element uh, of that's course, important. Yeah. 
But the, the sugar, we're talking about influences. Sugar, of course, is also, I mean, one cannot imagine cuisines in European cuisines today without sugar. In fact, cuisines in most places in the world. But it's worth bearing in mind, of course, that sugar, too, traveled with the, the Arabs and mm. and who who uh, introduced it so sugar is a is a an important sweetener but they still many of the dishes also rely on on honey so honey never really fell out of favor and so it's perhaps ironic that today of course you know where we're more health conscious you know sugar has has become the devil has become uh, the the devil's spice um, and uh, we now you know uh, it it has to be natural and so we we've gone back to honey so we've we've come full circle because obviously in in ancient mesopotamia uh, there was no sugar uh, and so it was only honey yeah uh, and so we've now arrived back in in a way uh, to that period the difference being that we have access to to ingredients but we choose not to use them which isn't a, a bad thing necessarily of course mm, indeed yeah thank you for listening and uh, i will see you next week for part two of the interview in the meantime go on spotify itunes and wherever you get your podcast from and please leave a nice review and um, share the podcast with your friends and other foodie people Thank you once again for listening to the Delicious Legacy podcast. I love to hear your thoughts and responses, so please head over on Twitter and tell me what you think. You can follow the podcast at The Delicious Legacy, all one word. Or join me on Patreon, where you can put The Delicious Legacy again, one word. And that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, forward slash The Delicious Legacy. Or Google Patreon and The Delicious Legacy podcast. This podcast can only keep going with the generous support of our subscribers on Patreon. You guys keep me running, you help me cover my costs, and allow me to dedicate more time researching each episode. I want to thank all of my subscribers for helping so far to create this series. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider going to Patreon and type the Delicious Legacy podcast and contribute something and keep this podcast running. Thanks for listening. All the best. Over and out.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping. and 365-day returns.